reading for today comes from two places, um, Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 20, and 1 John 5, 19 through 20. Um, and I would encourage you uh, to look on with me on, in your pew Bibles, um, that's in front of you. Uh, the first one is in Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Uh, it can be found on page 1790 of your pew Bible. Colossians 1, 16 through 20. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our second passage for this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, um, found on page 1861 of your pew Bible. 1 John 19 and 20 says, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Trevor. Everybody got in front of you at line and came to the first service. Um, hey, I'm, I don't know about you guys, that we've been, we've been preparing for this all summer, the staff team and a lot of us, and we're really excited that we finally get to focus on, on Onward for the next seven weeks, which basically is trying to answer the question for us together, what, is it, what does it look like for us as believers in Jesus to try to engage the culture without losing the gospel? And if you've read the first couple chapters in the, in the book Onward, um, Russell Moore tries to talk about the fact that we, we aren't a cultural majority. And that biblical Christianity in its fullest sense of believing the gospel has probably never been. And it certainly wasn't in a number of ways. And it certainly isn't now. And so the, the, the church has to entirely let go of its belief that somehow we can fortify some kind of imagined cultural majority and recognize that we have to be what the Bible has always called us to be, which is a prophetic voice that isn't empowered and that has only the truth to commend ourselves and the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit and not um, the, the power of controlling a culture in some other way. And um, so the first week as we, we try to put this together and lay this out is how, how do you frame all that? If we're going to come to all of life 
what do we have to understand to even start talking about what human dignity looks like or family formation or any of those kinds of things? And the first three weeks are on theology, um, what we have to believe, and the next two weeks on culture and mission are really framed by this week, which is designed to frame the whole picture, which is what is the thing that frames everything? And you might think that the answer is Jesus, and you would be right to think that. The first, I mean, the first reality is that God is there, but the very next reality is what is the significance of that? And the significance of that is, is that the God who is there has made a creation, and his immediate relationship over the creation that he has made is that he is king. That's the first and most immediate significance. And, and therefore, the, the thing that frames everything else is kingdom. Now, oftentimes we don't think about it that way, um, in, in this sense, that what we believe is partly wrapped up in the things we think we know, right? There's all kinds of different things, and depending on how interesting and curious and, and educated you are, you might feel like you know five things or five million things. But what kind of defines our belief isn't so much the propositions we think are true, but a, a huge part of it is how are they ordered? How do they relate to each other? What frames what? What, is the, what are the ultimate truths that define the more dependent ones? Because you can feel like you understand the whole world that you're a part of, and yet recognize that if there's one thing that's at the middle of it that's defining everything else, and those things get switched, in an instant, everything in creation has a different meaning. So let me, let me try to illustrate that with a video. Honey, I don't want to keep bringing this up, but could you stop making these? I don't like them very much. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I've got another one in the oven. I don't want to sound insensitive, but have you noticed how much weight you gain when you have these? And let's be honest here, they never smell good. Look, let's not argue, okay? We could give it to the new neighbors, tell them it's a housewarming gift. You kidding? We give them that, they're gonna think we're nuts or something. Nonsense, they'll love it. Do you think I should give it to them personally or just leave it on their doorstep? Oh, just leave it on their doorstep. I don't want them to know we gave it to them. They might try to give it back. Hmm, <laughs> great, now it's dripping all over me. Honestly, these things are such a mess. Hold this. Oh, honey, you could have stained the carpet. I don't understand this aversion you have. I just have no use for them. Except maybe as a paperweight, but then it get its nastiness everywhere. Oh. That is it. I am going to my mother's. Fine, take this with you. Your mom will probably love it. She hasn't had one in years. I'm leaving that with you until you learn to appreciate it. This is why I wanted a dog. As many of you have realized, that wasn't very funny. You see, we here at Studio C spend many hours writing, revising, and sometimes completely rewriting our shows. Sometimes, however, our material doesn't need to be rewritten, but merely looked at in another way. We will illustrate this principle by making a slight change, replacing this questionable pastry with a baby. Honey, I don't want to keep bringing this up, but could you stop making these? I don't like them very much. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I've got another one in the oven. I don't want to sound insensitive, but have you noticed how much weight you gain when you have these? And let's be honest here, they never smell good. Look, let's not argue. 
argue, okay? We could give it to the new neighbors. Tell them it's a housewarming gift. Are you kidding? We give them that, they're gonna think we're nuts or something. Nonsense, they'll love it. Should I give it to them personally or just leave it on their doorstep? Oh, just leave it on their doorstep. I don't want them to know we gave it to them. They might try to give it back. Great, now it's dripping all over me. Honestly, these things are such a mess. Hold this. Oh. Honey, you could have stained the carpet. I don't understand this aversion you have. I just have no use for them. Except maybe as a paperweight, but... But then again, it's nastiness everywhere. That is it. I'm going to my mother's. Fine, take this with you. Your mom will probably love it. She hasn't had one in years. I'm leaving that with you until you learn to appreciate it. This is why I wanted a dog. I let my kids write part of my sermon this week. Um, what you change one thing, and everything means something different. Really different. And the most fundamental reality of Christian faith is that what frames what? What is the most ultimate truth that ends up framing all of the dependent truths? And that ultimate truth is the truth of the kingdom. That God exists, there is a creation that he has made, and his most fundamental relationship is, is that he is king. And when we recognize that, that actually frames everything in a way that is complete, that is coherent, and is actually a lot simpler than we would think for how complex the world is. So let's I'm gonna go through a couple examples of this. One is, is that um, the, the kingdom frames gospel and mission. So, so we can think in the, in the title of Onward, it says, engaging the culture without losing the gospel. And that's our mission, right? And so you could say, well, no, you know, mo the most important thing is the, what frames everything is the gospel. Okay, yes, but why is there a gospel? Right? But it's because there was a king and there was a creation, that creation rebelled, and now there's an adversarial relationship between the two, and God can either destroy that rebellious creation, or he can find a way to redeem it and bring it back under his rule, and blah, blah, blah. And so, enter Jesus, right? The thing that makes the gospel is the fact of the kingdom. Same thing with our mission. Why are we doing what we're doing? We're, we're announcing the kingdom and the means by which, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, people can be eternally included in it. It's actually not the gospel and the mission that frames everything. Those are truths that are dependent under the larger framing ultimate truth of the kingdom. Um, one of the things that sometimes people, we don't notice unless we read the gospels with this in mind, is, is that the kingdom is actually what Jesus talked about the most. We often think that Jesus used the word gospel a lot, but he, he didn't use it as anywhere near as much as he used, talked about the kingdom. For example, in just the book of Matthew, he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 35 times. It comes up 47 times in Mark and Luke. It only comes up twice in John, but guess where it comes up? In John 3. You know the whole God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Do you know that comes right after a conversation with a religious teacher, which Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Right? Unless you receive this spiritual new birth, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Well, then how does that happen? How do you receive the spiritual new birth? Well, the answer is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, because you have to have eternal life to be part of an eternal kingdom that you would want to see if you understood how great the king was and the fact that he was going to bring his kingdom to bear forever. It's the kingdom that frames the gospel and the mission, right? 
But you, you could also say, okay, well, of course the religious stuff frames the religious stuff. But what about Monday through Saturday? I mean, what about all of life and everything? You're saying that the kingdom frames everything, and I absolutely mean that. The kingdom does frame everything. The kingdom frames creation and culture too, not just mission and gospel. Um, if, you've, if you've read uh, this section, this whole section that in Russell Moore's book, one of the things he says is, he says, listen, one of the reasons that we don't understand that is because we don't understand what the kingdom is even meant to look like. And so he says, when it, when it comes to the whole question of, uh, of the kingdom of God, we can generally understood this concept that sort of if God is king, he's king over creation, and there's a way in which he's bringing his kingdom about. But generally speaking, we recognize that the most complete picture of the kingdom is heaven, right? It's the kingdom in all its fullness. And so if you were going to get a, a maximal picture to work back from, it would be heaven, right? And what Moore says is, he's like, yeah, this is a problem, because for most of us, our picture of kings and heaven stinks, so he, Kevin DeYoung, a d another pastor, said about this. He said, the closest thing we have, we've experienced to a kingdom, is chatter about the Prince of Wales, homecoming courts, the King of Beers, and the Dairy Queen. Right? We just, we're, we've never experienced anything like a divine monarchy, right? And, and then secondly, what Moore says is it's actually our biblical view, our biblical view of heaven, isn't very biblical. The things we think about it are in the Bible, so generally speaking, if you have somebody say, well, what did you hear about heaven at church growing up? They know a couple of things. There's no crying. There's no sickness or death, right? And there's apparently a lot of singing, right? I mean, whether it's you saw a painting of cherubs with harps, or whether you heard the passage out of Revelation where John sees people from every tribe and tongue and nation singing praise to God, and it sounds like that kind of goes on forever. And you're like, oh my gosh, heaven is like about aching knees and lower backs, clearly. I mean, what is going on? And the fact is, is that though there's going to be singing in heaven, because singing is the rejoicing in things great, that's actually not the biblical idea of heaven at all, right? When I was in Florida, I moved here from um, Panama City, Florida. Uh, don't question it. And when we were there, when, uh, like on Saturdays when the weather was nice, um, the thing that the locals did, because we didn't want to be around tourists, was we went to a place called Shell Island, because you had to have a boat to get there. So the like drunken college students or whatever couldn't get there. And so you'd get in your boat and you'd motor across, and it was like 12 or 16 miles of beach on the calm estuary on one side where a one-year-old can play, and then you walk 200 yards and on the other side is the ocean. It's just the, sort of the perfect, like, beach playground. And so everybody would pull up their boats and kind of anchor them all in and open coolers and put out chairs, and the kids would play, and the parents would talk and throw frisbees or whatever. And, um, and that was Saturday. And it was warm, and the water was blue, and um, your kids could entertain themselves, and people would sit around and talk. Now, do you want to go to Shell Island? Right? I mean— the average person would be like, yeah. Okay, how many consecutive days do you want to go to Shell Island? All day. Right? This is, this is the conundrum of the non-biblical, biblical view about heaven. The, the place that's nice, but nothing happens. You see, the, for, for most of us, even those of us who are not at all workaholics, we recognize there's something inside us that actually wants to have new experiences. 
we want to do something. We, we don't really just want to sit around. We actually are not looking for a place where we can sit around even if it's warm and pretty and we don't have cancer. And so one of the things Moore says about this is he says, when you see the narrowed biblical idea of heaven as a place where you're taller and maybe can fly and you stand around and sing worship songs in a place where you're not sick and don't cry— Is it any wonder that a majority of humanity looks at that and thinks it's terrible? And Moore says there's a reason why they think it's terrible. Because it is, because that is actually a pretty good picture of the biblical hell. A place where there's essentially no future. There is no expansion. There is no utility. There's no productivity. There's no development. There's no nothing. It's just— Living in a light room with no doors, it's terrifying and claustrophobic. When, when we look at the biblical view of heaven, even in the book of Revelation, the, this, the singing part is just part of it. L- listen to what it says in 5, 9 to 10. They, and they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's about King Jesus. You are worthy to be King, King Jesus. And then it says, and then it says, You have made them, that is, the, Jesus, King Jesus, has made the people who believe in him to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And the way Revelation ends is not with a big group of people singing. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth and the city of God coming down and it says the dwelling of God will now be with people. That is, heaven and a newly created earth are reunited, embodied physically and spiritually in such a way as as which human beings actually fulfill their original creative purpose in the world to be creative and productive forever in ever-expanding life and enjoyment. That's the picture of heaven in the Bible. It's interesting. Um, In the Bible, you have the city of God, and in the city of God is a garden, and there is a river that flows down the middle of it, and there's a tree, and that tree produces fruit every month, and it says, for the healing of the nations. Which makes you wonder about how the city of God may be expanding into an even wider creation. But it's kind of interesting because there's not a lot of places in the Bible— that have really special trees as central to the plot line. All right, that's only funny if you've read the Bible. There's, there's only two places where there are interesting, strangely mystical trees that do things that normal trees don't do in the entire story of all of the Bible's plot line. One is in Revelation, and the other is in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the very beginning of creation. That God creates human beings, and he gives them a creation and cultural mandate, and he says, go and have dominion and rule over the earth. That is, God creates for seven, six days, and then he stops before all that can be done is done. God doesn't build the cities. He doesn't make the furniture. He doesn't make stuff out of metal. He didn't write songs and give them to us. He didn't do any of that cultural creation, and he didn't do anything beyond the basics of creating the biological and physical and chemical starting points that create the potential for everything that's around us. He created the math and the matter. And then he said, go. 
Make more humans so spatially they can be everywhere, and those humans should bring dominion and authority everywhere that they go to finish the work of bringing the creative potential dominion out of creation. That's what you're for. And then, because we said no by, by misusing a special tree that was for our good, God withdrew his kingdom, and when you get to Genesis 3, there's, there's four parts to the curse. And when you look at what gets cursed, it is everything that was before gift and part of the purpose for which we were eternally created. Right? God withdraws himself and his immediate rule, which was supposed to be for our good. He divides the beauty of the complementary relationship between the difference in humans that he created. Right, right, there weren't races yet or anything like that that we could use to fight about. There was just a man and a woman. But it turns out that's plenty to fight about. Once they're not united under God's purpose of the cultural and creation mandates. And so he says, now you're going to fight, right? And then he turns to the woman and he speaks to the half of the creation mandate that is only within her power, and that is reproduction. And he says, now childbearing isn't going to be any fun, right? And if we get our sexual theology straight, it's, it's not just the end of childbearing, but it's all of it that's not as much fun as it was supposed to be. And secondly, work isn't going to be any fun. He turns to the man, he's like, the ground is going to be cursed because of you, and your work isn't going to be any fun. Now, women work, and men are part of reproduction. We should be able to put that together. But you see the curse comes in all of these special places that were part of the purpose of human beings in God's beautiful creation. The relationship between us and God, the relationship between us and other humans, especially those most different and complementary to us, the spreading of the image of God through new humans throughout the earth, and the work of creative energy that they would exert in the creation mandate. Those were the things specifically that were cursed, and those are the things that were specifically redeemed. The mission and the gospel are not ultimate. God was king. He made a creation and put humans in it and gave them a creation cultural mandate. We were first for that before we were for redemption. When our created purpose went awry because of our sin and rebellion, God then created a gospel to bring us back to humanity, back to relationship with him, relationship with each other, the expansion of life, and the exertion of creativity and ordering of the world. That was always our eternal purpose. The gospel brings us back to it. And then the new heavens and the new earth renew it, and we enter into what it should be. But remember, Genesis 1 and 2 only tell us about how that was starting— we never get to see it in what it was supposed to be like. We've, we've never seen a mature humanity functioning in their divine purpose, in a divinely given creation that is uncursed, being what they were meant to be for thousands of years, ever increasing in what they bring out of all the infinite potential that God creates. We've never seen that. We can't even imagine it. And that's what heaven is ever full of new experiences, ever new frontiers, ever new exertions of productivity and creativity, ever new depths of relationships between the created beings, and an ever-deepening ever relationship between us and the one we were created to serve. 
which has no feeling of oppression, but ever-increasing feelings of fulfillment. That is the biblical definition of heaven. And that begins to make sense, and it becomes even sort of obvious once you start framing it with the kingdom first. You get the idea of the kingdom in place first, and it frames creation and culture, and then the breaking down of that purpose then frames why there's gospel and mission, to bring healing and redeem that so that it ultimately can flower in God's bringing of his ultimate kingdom. Now, it's also true that <clears throat> whenever that we don't have that straight, no matter how devout we are in our feelings, no matter how much we say, I just really love Jesus and I want to be a Christian and I want to do it right and I don't want to sin and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> If we don't get the kingdom in the right place framing everything, the world will always frame everything for us. And it won't be by argument. It's not like we'll, we'll be a little confused and then something called the world will come and be like, so I think I know what you should do. You should do this. That's, that never happens. When the kingdom isn't in place, the world is already there when we're born, and we start absorbing it from the first moment of our birth. It, and the world in, in the Bible is not creation. The world is God's creation and the culture created by the human beings who don't want to acknowledge that God is there, and they make the creation and culture ultimate rather than the kingdom. That's what worldliness is. It is taking God's good creation and our place in it, denying God has any part of it, and then doing what seems right to us in that state. What we create in that state is worldliness. And that will always frame how we see everything. That's why so many things, even, even those of us who are Christians, so many things in the Bible, we read them and they seem preposterous to us. Right? Just, just think, like, if you have a bad marriage, and Jesus is like, look, you need to work it out. That's a divine thing you created that can't end. You'd be like, that is crazy, right? If you're 15 and you read like, you're not supposed to fornicate, you'd be like, that is insane. And, it's be and here's why. It's because whether it's how we use our money or how we use our time or how we protect our privacy or what we decide to do for a living or blah, 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 no matter what it is, no matter what Jesus says about it that seems crazy, it's not because Jesus is crazy. It's because, because the kingdom isn't framing everything in our life, worldliness is. And a God-denying framing of everything is going to deny how God frames things. It shouldn't surprise us at all. We should expect to think everything that we read in the Bible seems preposterous on the most magnificent level that we could imagine. Right? Because we're born, we marinate in worldliness our whole life, even in the church. Right? And then we open the Bible— and we read something and we're like, that's crazy. That's exactly what you should expect to experience when you open the Bible. Because if we have been cooking and marinating and seeping in and stewing in a God-denying worldliness, it should not surprise us that it would be denying of the things the king says. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And the minute we allow the king and his kingdom to frame everything else, we realize that worldliness has to be pushed out and we need new eyes for everything. And we have to start with God. Can you teach me where I've misunderstood everything 
so that I think what you know is perfectly sane is utterly preposterous? What do I not understand about human nature? What do I not understand about the dynamics of the world? What do I not understand? Would you please help me see that and understand it? Now, if, if we get this, if we get this wrong, and th- there's really good news to this. Okay, sounds like I'm saying another negative thing. But one of the things that I see among Christians, and I feel this myself, is that we are terribly um, intimidated by secularism. Right? Modern, modernity, secularism, you know, Madison-ishness, right? There's another church in Boston doing the series right now with us, Aletheia Church. If you want to hear better sermons on this, you should get their podcast. Adam's preaching on this right now while I am. And, and Boston is incredibly secular city. Here's what I want you to understand. There's like three different kinds of secularism. One can be incredibly God-honoring. We just do the one that isn't. And it is rotten from the core and is already coming apart, okay? It feels like, every, like it's just like we're getting phased out in secularism and everything. Listen, I was just in Greece last week, okay? And I was walking around the streets of Athens, and what I saw, what I've been reading statistics about for 10 years, which is when sexuality is everything— and God isn't important, and you define yourself from yourself, and human expression of what you're feeling is everything, guess what happens? People are with a new girl or guy every five months. People don't get married. If they ever do get married, and they decide to have a kid because of some kind of internal longing, they have one. They almost never have two, and so the vast majority of the population doesn't have any kids. A certain group has one, and a few have two, and what that means is you have a birth rate of 1.2, which means you go extinct. Literally, literally, secularism is going extinct because we idolize our sexuality, wealth, and expression more than giving life to a new group of immortal humans that will surpass us and complain about us. It's very visceral, and it's very natural in the worldly state. And so, what do you think is going to happen? But what is true physiologically in the most basic sense of reproduction is actually true in every other way. When God is not seen as king over his creation and culture, what we create will always destroy itself. Secularism can only grow as a plant in the soil of some kind of more deeply connected sacred faith, which was Christianity. You get rid of the soil, guess what happens to the plant? It has no, it has no rootedness. It has nowhere to plant its feet. It can't survive. And you, can, if you walk out with those eyes, with the eyes of the kingdom, seeing the fundamental rot in the misuse of creation and culture, and if you begin, you will see it everywhere in our culture. Listen, the horse-drawn carriage was in its height when Ford turned out the first Model T, and it was already over. The reason for this is something very, very simple about creation, okay? And that is this, that the kingdom— and therefore, gospel and mission frames creation and culture, okay? The kingdom, and therefore the gospel and mission, frames creation and culture, which is the art, right? The art is the meat of it, right? The, the, the kingdom is supposed to give us space for all of God's creation over which we are meant to bring it out as artists, create something beautiful. This is a, a painting done by one of our, by one of our members, and you see, when you deny the frame, you, you don't stop that you absolutely need something to be ultimate. And so when the frame is gone, the only candidate for what can be ultimate is this, is the art. And so what we do is this. 
No, great. This is what we do. Isn't it beautiful? Don't you want to be part of it? It means so much. It's so meaningful. We're so beyond those idiotic religious people that came before us, right? But listen, this isn't just how, this isn't just how, this isn't just how secularity devours itself. It's also how religious legalism devours itself. There's always a longing for the ultimate in us. There's something that has to frame something else. There's something that has to bear the weight. And you see, in creation, there are two very fundamental facts about how things relate to each other. What frames what? One is, is that what's ultimate has to be ultimate because what's dependent can't be ultimate, right? My favorite example of this is people who think that they can have kids to fulfill themselves, right? It's like the best way to destroy a child's life, right? Why? Because a child is not the kingdom of God. That's why. It's just a little kid. And it cannot create a metaphysical release of all your internal desires of meaning. And when you put that on anything, a child, romance, education, work— Health, politics, television, you put it on anything, and it's the, the weight, the weight of glory of the ultimate is too much weight. And so whether it's a hobby or a relationship or a person, it's too much weight, and you put the—and it crushes them. And so you lose—and here's the other thing. When the kingdom is in place, it makes space for and magnifies the dependent thing. The dependent thing becomes bigger. So, if, if you engage in—if you get married, let's say, let's, say you get, let's say you're crazy and you get married, okay? What does that mean? Right? Well, essentially, marriage is, is the effluence of divine love— between God himself and his, and his kingdom that he redeems to himself, that he sets his affections on, that he never throws away but always redeems, that he constantly renews his relationship with, and that Paul can later say that the, the marriage relationship mirrors the relationship of Christ and his church. Right? When you begin to start laying those layers on top of love— Romantic love has 15 more layers and stories of meaning it didn't have before. And the tiny little thing that is interpersonal, infatuated, belonging, relationship, and friendship that's, that, we, that we put marriage onto because of its covenantal relationship has these stories of growing meaning that expand it so that something that is so little independent can actually shine like a bulb in, in a world far beyond what you could possibly imagine. When the frame— this is the real painting. When the frame is where it's supposed to be, the painting isn't destroyed for being the idol of everything, and the painting itself is more. It not only, not only is creation properly framed, 
but creation's meaning and enjoyment in itself expands. Both are saved instead of both being lost. You cannot have creation and culture and not gospel, kingdom, and mission. It is all or nothing because of how God has created the very fabric of reality. Because if you deny the ultimate, the dependent will be crushed. And you'll know it was supposed to be more fulfilling, but not because it was supposed to be ultimate, but because the ultimate things were going to expand it. And when you wiped away the sky, hoping the mountains would get bigger, you lost everything. It is the relief between the two that creates an expansive beauty of both. And it's only when the kingdom is ultimate that everything in dependence falls in place and everything that's dependent expands in beauty. The kingdom has to frame everything. Gospel and mission, creation, culture. And the minute that's not true, the idolatry of the worldly framing of everything comes rushing in and destroying everything. So the last thing we have to think about is, if we, if we recognize that, we have to frame everything with the kingdom in a state before heaven. So somehow we have to understand what it means to be part of the king's kingdom based on what we know about it now, not based on the experience of heaven, right? And Jesus, therefore, is a king of a kingdom that is both already and not yet. It's not in its final, fully realized phase. And the ways in which the kingdom is not yet are actually fairly obvious, right? Creation is not subjected entirely to Jesus, is it? We're busy aging and dying and getting typhooned and all kinds of crazy stuff. But neither is culture and subjected. You go you out there, you would not be like, oh, the kingdom frames everything here. There's, there's no culture anywhere in the world. In that sense, we can be perfectly multicultural in that every culture shares in its worldliness, its flavor is different. And so the cultures of the world are not, are not framed under the kingdom, which means we don't see Christ's full rule because it hasn't happened yet, and it means we don't see it. But what, it, what we also know is this, is that there's actually quite a lot of ways in which Jesus' kingdom is already evident and already functioning and already real and in ways that we can already embody it. So, for example, the kingdom has already been announced. Right? Jesus came and said, hey, the kingdom is near. It's happening right now in me, the king. Right? The kingdom is already not yet because Jesus is already not yet. But the, in the already, he announced the kingdom. He atoned to make the kingdom possible, right? He died for our sins. Why? So that we could be included in the kingdom— rather than excluded from it because the kingdom is coming. Because God is rightfully king and he will have his kingdom and you can't have traitors openly in treason in the kingdom. It doesn't work very well. I can just cite the last 20 years of our lives, right? It's, 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 it's not really ironic that today's 9-11, but today's 9-11. We live in a world in which in most of the countries of the world, there are there are traitors in the midst of the kingdoms people are trying to build. And it doesn't work very well. And God is not going to do that. 
But the difference is, is that God is inviting all of his worst enemies to be part of the kingdom he's creating. He's calling all of the ones that have been traitors since the day he was born just to give it, give it up. And the, the penalty that they should receive for every action up until now and all the actions that they will do in their whole life was paid for in the death and resurrection of the king himself. There's no ruler the world has ever seen or will ever see that invites the world to be part of his kingdom of love because he himself died for them to make it justly possible for their right penalty to be paid and for them to have a new birth of freedom in the kingdom that he would create for them. And also in the giving of the Holy Spirit, he does demonstrate his power even now enough for us to taste it. The Bible refers to that as the first fruits. Like a fig tree would have like 10 or 12 figs that would come right before all the rest. And it's not enough to fill yourself up with figs, but it's enough to taste what the figs are going to taste like. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to taste what the kingdom is going to taste like, even though it's still very imperfect and very limited. I mean, in the six years that I've been here, we've seen, I don't know, somewhere between five and 25 people be miraculously healed of things that they couldn't get better from naturally or even through our medical system. Just straight up prayed for them. They got healed. But I've been to more funerals than that in this church. Because the point is not— the kingdom is over creation and is totally here, but that it will be, and we taste it sometimes so that we can know it's there and happening. The same thing with the gospel. We think that the, we think that the, 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 uh, the kingdom is totally unbelievable, and yet we walk out there and we share the gospel, and among some people, people hear the totally unbelievable message of the kingdom, and then they believe it with all their hearts. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit in persuading people of the truth of the gospel. It's God's power. In fact, the Bible says that the, the body of Christ is full of these things called spiritual gifts, which are spirit-empowered first fruits of the kingdom that display what it looks like for God's rule to actually be present. And it works through his first people, which is the church. I mean, if people say, where is, the, where is Jesus really reigning right now on earth? Really? And the, the biblical answer for that is in the church, which should scare the living daylights out of you and me, right? I mean, can you imagine, right? We're people are supposed to see the kingdom when they see us. But that is precisely what the Bible says. The, the people are supposed to be able to walk in out there totally framing the world from a, from a worldly perspective, totally framing it that way, and to walk in and feel like they have literally stepped into another dimension. Where everything they feel like they can predict about the world, based on the way the world works, is completely upside down. Rich people are taking advice from people who are unemployed because it's good, godly, spiritual, biblical wisdom. People who are of different ages talk to each other and laugh and have a great time. People of different races don't find their divisions as more important than the framing of all things under the kingdom and are finding ways to come and talk to each other and figure out what it means. People literally have affection and love each other that are really different from them. People sacrifice for people who aren't part of their family. Sometimes even like spend time, privacy, and money to, to care for other people. They have no direct fundamental responsibility for other than the fact that they both belong to King Jesus. Or that love people who aren't part of the kingdom at all, in fact, even hate it. 
or that love people who aren't their enemies or who are their enemies. I was actually thinking that maybe Christians in Madison should start going and non-protesting things that are like the counter of what people would protest if we did them. So like go to stuff that's like really, really anti-religious and, and hold signs that we are not protesting. So like, do you notice that we are not protesting you? Like this is ridiculous. This is as crazy as you think what we do are and we're not, we're here to not protest you. Okay, do, do you see how ridiculous you're, you're behaving, right? Because we, we don't, we don't really want to kill our enemies. We don't want to rub it in. We don't, we don't really feel like we want to control you. We are here to announce the invitation to the kingdom and family of God to which you can be part of because King Jesus died for you and offered you everything forever in which you can receive back from him when the kingdom frames everything, not just gospel and culture, but all of creation. All of creation and culture, not just gospel and mission. If we want to be a people who engage the culture without losing the gospel, if we want to be that kind of people together as the church, where people can really see the kingdom, not just spoken by us, but shown in us, then the very first absolutely necessary step, the thing that we have to face with everything that we are and together in all that we do, is we have to let the kingdom, as displayed in the King Jesus, frame everything. Which may mean incredibly important things in our life are going to get reframed. But the result will be that instead of that. That's right. Father, I pray that you take the the realities of the kingdom and that you would help us to see that we have to we have to allow the ultimate to frame all the dependent things in creation. Recognizing even even the gospel and the mission are as dependent as culture and creation. And that all these things find their relationship to each other and clarify the world when they fall under the reality of your kingdom. So help us to embrace the king who is already and not yet, his kingdom that is already and not yet, and to seek with everything that we have to be the people together in which the world can see the first fruits of your kingdom and your reign now in a way where they will think they've stepped into a different reality when we get a chance to love them such that it will reframe everything for them. God, please help us be a people of your kingdom. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.